Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Hey, friends in Christ, in the Christmas Eve edition of the New Yorker magazine, Amos Elon writes, The feeling of being beset by blind forces is especially strong in the mixed city of Jerusalem. Hardly a day passes in the holy city without a riot or a stoning, without cars being torched or firebombs thrown, without attempted lynchings or the stabbing of an Israeli by a Palestinian or vice versa. After each incident, municipal cleaning machines marked City of Peace in three languages appears on the scene to wash the blood from the streets in time for the next group of pious pilgrims to pass by, fingering their rosaries and muttering solemn prayers. While Ilan was writing almost three decades ago, the tension, the paradox he described, reaches forward to today even as it stretches all the way back to Jesus in our text from Luke chapter 12. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth, Jesus says? No, I tell you, but rather division. One house, yet three against two and two against three, father against son and mother against daughter. The divisions that Jesus describes cuts to the core of our relationships with each other and with the world. At the heart of our lives, at the heart of our reading stands this paradox, a unity that divides and a division that unifies. First, the unity that divides. There is a simple and positive division that occurs because of our unity in Christ. St. Paul talks about it in his first letter to the Corinthians, the first chapter. We preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. But there is another unity, a unity fraught with division, a negative division, struggling to maintain unity. Let me introduce it by, by way of analogy. Between 1937 and 1949, J.R.R. Tolkien created one of the best-selling novels of all time, The Lord of the Rings. The trilogy chronicles the camaraderie of a diverse band for the common cause of defeating the Dark Lord Sauron. The Fellowship of the Ring consists of radically different characters. Gimli the dwarf wielding a battle axe and more at home in the dark mines of Moriah. There's Legolas, the elf with his bow, much more at home in the light of the forest and the fresh breeze of the day. There's the man Aragon, sometimes called Strider. And of course, there are the hobbits. Pippin and Mary, Samwise and Frodo, with their short little hobbit knives, and Frodo with the ring. Almost immediately after leaving Rivendell on their great quest to destroy the One Ring, conflict breaks out, causing Gandalf to observe, quote, Indeed, in nothing is the power of the Dark Lord more clearly shown than in the estrangement that divides those who still oppose him division that surrounds the one ring. So where is the ring? The one thing that binds us together in Christ, that identifies us as church with a capital C. Augsburg Confession, Article 7. It is also taught that at all times there must be and remain one holy Christian church. It is the assembly of all believers among whom the gospel is purely preached and the holy sacraments are administered according to the gospel. 
Herman Sasse points out that this is the very first doctrinal statement ever made in Christendom about what the church is and wherein is her unity. These are the marks of the church, word and sacrament. The words themselves are easy, but the divisions they define are profound, where the gospel is purely preached. St. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, I, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That is the gospel. But notice what Paul has to say about the delivery of the gospel. I delivered what I also received. What we have received, as defined by our Constitution, are all the canonical books of the Old Testament and the New Testament as the revealed and inerrant Word of God verbally inspired. Yet the Bible is a unity that is held divisively. Christendom stands divided. In the Roman Church, authority rests in sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and the sacred magisterium, which includes the work of church councils and the word of the Pope spoken ex cathedra from the seat of Peter. The divided Protestant church teaches a variety of positions, some of which supplement the word of God with tradition or reason or experience. Some hold that the Bible contains the word of God, but not is the word of God, allowing them to dismiss portions that appear to be challenged by contemporary science or morals. The Bible, quite frankly, has become reader-defined instead of being the word of God that defines the reader. Our own church came perilously close in the 60s to following a similar path. The challenge to purely preach the gospel calls for constant vigilance by all of us, pastor and laity alike. And the sacraments are administered in conformity with the divine word. Baptism kills and makes alive. Romans 6 and Colossians 2, where Paul exhorts, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. The divided church, however, does not always recognize the powerful working of God. Instead, for some, baptism is not God's work at all, but the work of the baptized, a testimony to God, a testimony to the church that I have given, chosen, or cooperated with the Spirit in conversion. It is my first act of obedience. Such talk is expressly condemned by the solid declaration of the formula, article, formula of Concord, Article 2, but does it even make sense? In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul describes our condition as dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Dead men and women walking. In a few minutes, we will participate in the Lord's Supper in conformity with the divine word. But some of the divided church will disagree. Our disagreement, our division, goes all the way back to the Marburg Colloquy of 1529. The story is variously told, but Kittleson reports, to underline his point, Luther took a piece of chalk and wrote out on a table that separates the contenders hoc est corpus meme. Then, as if the words, this is my body, were the elements themselves sitting on the altar, he covered them with a fine cloth. 
Kittleson's analysis of Luther's move from chalk to elements parallels our confession. It truly is the crucified body of Christ that we will eat. It truly is the blood of our crucified Savior that we will ingest. It is not a symbol or a pointer or a reminder or any other term or idea that is less than Christ himself. Does it matter? Well, consider for a moment our communion practice listed in your bulletin. It begins by quoting Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And then the very next verse, it's not in your bulletin. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. They did not discern the body of Christ. Death is the ultimate divider. Jesus brings a divisive unity. Christ divides. And now the other side of the paradox. Division that brings unity. Text speaks of household divisions, fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother. That's what it talks about, but it begins with Holocaust. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. Fire destroys. We can still see the destruction of the Eagle Creek fire as we made our way down the Columbia River, returning from Montana and continuing education a little over a week ago. Fire destroys, but it also purifies. Recall Candle's magnificent setting of Malachi chapter 3, verse 2 as a base aria. The text reads, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. And then the chorus answers with verse 3. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi. The story is told of a lady watching a silversmith at work as he holds a small crucible of silver over the flame. Why do you burn the silver? She wants to know. It removes the impurities, is the reply. But how do you know when they're all burnt up? When I can see my face on the face of the surface of the molten silver. God's fire purifies. It divides the dross from what is precious. It divides in order to bring unity in Christ, that he may see Christ's face in each of us. Even Christ experienced division. In fact, division lies at the very heart of the gospel. Our text reads, they will be divided father against son. It's a picture of the crucifixion, the son hanging suspended between heaven and earth, seemingly claimed by neither. Pilate had declared him innocent. I find no guilt in this man, he said, but they, the chief priests and the crowds were insistent. Away with this man, crucify, crucify him. He was the son of God. Yet in the hour of trial, his father was not there, and darkness covered the face of the earth for three hours. Father against son. Jesus died the death of division. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, God, why have you forsaken me? Why this division? Why the father against the son, even to the point of death? God the Father was not being perverse or arbitrary. Why kill the innocent? You know. It's not the guilt of the Son. 
He was the perfect Paschal lamb without spot or blemish. No, it was my guilt. It was your guilt. The guilt of generation upon generation of sinful men and women. Our sin was laid on the Son, and He died and carried it to the cross, which divided Him from the Father. That is what Jesus means in our text this morning when He exclaims, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Suffering that division, Christ sealed us. He made us one with the Father. The baptism that Christ endured is also the one into which you were baptized. That's the import of our reading from Colossians chapter 2 heard earlier. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised with him. Here, at the font, either this one or another one a thousand miles away and decades ago, its message remains the same. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. You are one with the Father and the Son. The division of the Father and the Son brought about our unity with the Father. For now and for all eternity, Jesus brings a divisive unity. So our text contains a paradox, a unity that divides and a division that unifies. So which is it? It's both. And holding both sides of a seemingly contradictory statement has always been a Lutheran commonplace. A church with a capital C is in the world, but not yet not of the world. Eternal life and salvation are ours in Christ, and yet not completely as we await the consummation of the age and Christ's return in glory. We live in this paradox. Our sin separates us from God, yet Jesus' vicarious death unites us to him. If we, the church, with a little c, stress our unity over diversity, we risk losing the means of grace, word, and sacrament. Yet if we stress our diversity over the unity that we have in Christ, we fail to be salt and light, to live lives driven by the gospel. Jesus brings a divisive unity for our salvation. It's not the peace we desire, but it is the peace that we need, the peace which surpasses all understanding. Amen. Now may the Lord keep you in, in your, his faith now and forever. Amen.